titled, as you see on the screen, Where is God When It Hurts? And for this series, we have some notes that we want everybody to have in front of them. Many of you were here last week when we started and received a notebook. The idea is for you to bring it back each week. So hopefully you've done that. And if you'll look at page 3 in those notes, page 3. Before we do that, let me just make mention of some things that are coming up. One is this evening, this afternoon at 5 o'clock, is baptism. And as I mentioned in the first hour, we have eight folks being baptized. We have four adults and four young people being baptized. And uh, this is an exciting day for our church. It's certainly an exciting day for those being baptized. So for those of you who can, who can come, I encourage you to do that. It, uh, I know there may be some inconvenience associated with that somewhat in the middle of your, your day. But it is an important time, and we do that a handful of times a year. And with it, we try to have a celebration of the baptism for those that are following the Lord in that way. And we have a dinner then associated with it. So we'll have the baptism at 5 o'clock, and it should be about 5.30 that we'll actually start eating for the uh, celebration dinner. So please please uh, plan to come, if at all possible, tonight at uh, 5 o'clock. And then uh, coming up uh, this Friday, this Friday is the Toledo Mud Hens game. For the last several years, we've uh, gotten a, one night and uh, bought a block of tickets in the same section at a Mud Hens game. We always have a good time with that, and we're going to do that again this year. It's this Friday, and the tickets for that are available in the Resource Center. And since it's this Friday and there are no church services between now and this Friday, what does that mean? It means you've got to get your tickets today, okay, before you leave. Go into the uh, resource center to get your tickets. If you don't have your $10 with you, uh, give them your name. Uh, tell them where you can be located. We will pass that on to our debt collector. His name is Bubba. And uh, don't let that scare you unless you don't cough up the money. Then you should be afraid. You should be very afraid, all right? But uh, if you don't have the money now, get the tickets. And we'll write your name down and we'll get the money from you later. But get them before you go today. And then next Saturday uh, at noon is our annual men's golf outing, and that'll be at, at noon, as I say, at the Riverview Highlands Golf Course. The cost for that is $50. That includes uh, the golf. It also includes dinner afterwards, and you can register and pay for that at the Resource Center, hopefully before you leave today, guys, if you're interested uh, in that. All right, and we have a bunch of other things that are listed in your program. One thing that's not in your program that was written and given to me up here is this. Those of you in the friends group, the friends group is our seniors group that is uh, 60 and, and older. There's an event on uh, Tuesday, August the 5th, so one week from this Tuesday uh, at 6 o'clock here at the ministry center, and it's going to be a service uh, event uh, to uh, do some things uh, for our Vacation Bible School that starts that following week. Uh, you're going to be cutting, it says, we'll be cutting out 300 hands from construction paper. So if you can come to that, bring paper-cutting scissors if you, if you have them. So that's for the Friends Group, one week from Tuesday, 6 o'clock here, for that project for our Vacation Bible School. All right, page 3 in your notes, in our series... Where is God when it hurts? And last week we looked at some assumptions that, or some, uh, some, some truths, universal truths about suffering and about pain. 
And this week, we're going to look at some key beliefs and assumptions that we make that affects the way we process our suffering and pain. So key beliefs and assumptions that we make that affect the way we process and deal with our suffering and and pain. Now let me explain what I mean by that. The top of page three you see the title of this lesson is The Bedrock of Suffering. And it's titled that because it is foundational. The beliefs that you have regarding yourself, regarding God, regarding the world will come to the fore when you're in the midst, when you're in the cauldron of suffering. You may not know that you held these particular beliefs until you go through a particular kind of time of suffering, and then that exposes some underlying assumptions that you make about yourself, about God, about the world. And that's why it's called then the bedrock of suffering, because it's foundational, it's underneath the surface, You don't necessarily know it's there until it's revealed when it is shaken. And it is sometimes shaken in the midst of of suffering and pain. So, last week, we saw, among other things, that suffering is universal in a fallen world. And that means that, as I've said many times here and I said again last week, that for most of us, we are either in a trial now, we have emerged recently from a trial or we're preparing to go into a trial. That's the universality of, of suffering and pain. That it is so ubiquitous, it is, it is so pervasive that we're either in it, come out of it, or we're going into, going into it. And we saw from James chapter 1 and verse 2 in the Bible where the Bible says, My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. We saw last week that that small verse teaches us four things about the universality of these difficult situations that we call trials. That they are unavoidable, that they are unplanned, that they're unwanted, and they're unlimited in their variety. You say you went through all that too quickly. Well, that's because I taught it last week. And if you weren't able to be here last week, I encourage you to listen to that session at our website. All of our sessions, both from our 9.30 hour and 11 o'clock hour, are available there. So you can listen to the fuller explanation of that. So suffering is universal. It is so universal that I can say with confidence you're in a trial, recently emerged from a trial, or ready to go into a trial. That God's Word can say that it's not a matter of if you will go through suffering, but when you go through suffering. My brothers, consider it pure joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. So this is a reality that all of us have experienced. If we haven't, then we will experience. But that same trial, given to one person and given to another person, they could go through very similar circumstances, and yet it have very different effects on them. You could have two people go through virtually the same thing and have dramatically different effects. Now, why? What's the difference? It's clearly, the difference is clearly not the thing because they went through the same thing or similar things. 
And yet, the results for those two people were radically different. What makes the difference? And what makes the difference are these bedrock foundational beliefs, foundational assumptions that we have. What makes the difference in how you process and experience your suffering and the results that are achieved out of it, what makes that difference is your perspective on it, your attitude toward it, your beliefs in it. So let me give you an example of that from God's Word, again from James chapter 1. We saw last week that James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. But then it says, here's why you can have a, an, a, a completely opposite perspective on your suffering than that of most people. The next verse says this, because you know something, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And then the passage goes on to talk about perseverance developing character in us. So the reason that I can have a radically different perspective on suffering, when, not if it comes, is because... I know something to be true. I know that in and through and as a result of this thing, good things will ultimately occur. God's Word promises us that. And if you know that, the trial tests whether you really believe that. And that's why verse 3 says, you know that the testing of your faith, that is, the testing of what you believe. Do you really believe what you say you believe? And testing and trials will, will test that. Now, in that same passage, James chapter 1, it makes that statement that you can go through trials with a radically different approach than that of those who do not have this knowledge, that good will be achieved in and through it, and it will develop these good things. But then later in the passage, in James chapter 1, here's what it says. James chapter 1 and verse 13. James 1, 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And then goes on to talk about the process of temptation that leads to sin. Now, what do those two things have to do with each other? What do James chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3 have to do with James chapter 1 and verse 13? Remember, the beginning of the chapter says, Consider it pure joy when you fall into trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. That's what the beginning says. But then when you come down to verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now why? Why does it say that? Are those connected? They are indeed profoundly connected, and here's how. The word that is translated trial or the trying of your faith in verse 3 of James 1 is the same word that's translated tempted in verse 13. Well, if that's the same Greek word, which is what your New Testament was written in, then why didn't the translators just use the same word in both of them? There's a good reason for that. It's because what James is trying to show is this. 
the same circumstance that can be to one person a trial that leads to growth, that same circumstance can be to another person a temptation that leads to sin. And so James uses, the translators use these two words to signify that. That a difficult circumstance in our lives can either result in growth, perseverance, character, or that circumstance can result in a temptation that leads us to sin. And what's the difference between the two? It's your perspective. It's your attitude. It's what you believe. I read about a guy who was recounting from his childhood how he had a, a, you know, in the cereal boxes when you were a kid, they would have a gift inside. And so the kid, you know, you're putting your grimy, dirty hand in there to try to, to, try to find the decoder ring. So he had this decoder ring, and the decoder ring helped you decipher a map that was on the back of the, the cereal box. And what I'm saying about your perspective, your attitude, and your beliefs in the circumstances that God allows into our lives is that all of us carries with us a kind of decoder ring that interprets, that maps our way through that thing. And how we view it, our attitude toward it, our perspective on it will affect how we process it, how we navigate that, that situation. So let me give you an illustration. It's a true illustration. I read about it, but it's, it's a true story. In fact, on page three, you see we got an example there at the top that says the layoff. This is the layoff. Two guys, both aged 45, both married, both having two children, both of them with one of those children in college. Each of them had worked for the same company for about 20 years. Each of them had been exemplary employees, were well regarded by their, uh, by their associates, and yet the company announced we're going to undergo some downsizing. And when they handed out the slips for those who were going to be let go, these two guys each received pink slips. They were quite surprised, as were their co-workers, given their background and, their, uh, and, the, and the work that they had done, but they were both let go. Now, what happened to these two guys? The guy who wrote this illustration that I read ended up counseling both of them. And he said the one guy believed God would take care of him and his family. But the other guy could not move beyond the shock of what had happened to him. In fact, this author says that when I would meet with the one fellow, he, could, he would spend his entire time listing the people who should have been terminated instead of him. He railed against his boss, his manager. He expressed fear for the future of his family. He worried about telling his daughter that he would not be able to pay for her college. And he says that his entire approach was dark and bleak and unproductive. The one guy ended up finding, 
finding a job. Now, it meant that he had to move. He had to relocate. But it was a job with similar income and similar benefits, and he moved on, and he expressed thanks to God for supplying his needs. The other fellow refused to look outside for a job outside that company. In fact, he put in applications only within other divisions of the same company because they owe it to him. He wasn't able to find something. He became depressed. His wife left him. And sadly, and as I say, it's a true story, he, he ended up taking his own life as, as well. Now, of course, most situations are not that dramatic. But it's an example of two guys who were in the exact same circumstance. Same demographic circumstance in life. Married, two children, one in college. Both had been with the company for roughly the same period of time. And yet, they took two very different perspectives on this trial, and it had two very different outcomes. And friends, what I want to drive home to you today is that each of us has beliefs about ourselves, about God, about others, about the world that come to the fore when we experience suffering. Some of these beliefs are global and they're, and they're abstract. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Some of them are more narrow and concrete. And so here's an example. Here's a, here's a very narrow, concrete belief that you might have. You might believe that you're a good tennis player. That's a narrow, concrete belief. I'm a good tennis player. But if you go out on the court and you get smoked every time you go out there, then you'll probably be able to change your opinion about that specific and concrete belief without changing everything you believe about yourself which is found in these more global and abstract beliefs. You can believe you're a good tennis player and be mistaken. You can also believe that you're just, in general, a competent person. And if you come to realize, I'm, no, I'm not a good tennis player, for most of us, it's not going to change that more global, abstract thing that you believe about yourself. I'm a competent person. I can do things. Okay, I can't do that. But there are a lot of things that I can do. And so I have this global, abstract belief about myself that I'm a competent person. And you'll hang on to that belief even in the face of evidence that you're not competent in every area, including whether or not you're a good tennis player. And that's because you have other beliefs that comprise your attitude about your competence. And those are the beliefs that are foundational to you. They're the bedrock beliefs that you have about yourself. You have some beliefs that kind of come and go. I thought I was this. No, I'm not. But you have other beliefs that are very deeply embedded. They're so deeply embedded that we seldom consciously think about those beliefs. We seldom explicitly say what those are. But when those beliefs are challenged we'll usually be adamant in our resolve to maintain that particular belief, even in the face of contrary evidence. Now, how do you develop these views of yourself? I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. I'm competent. I can get it done. How do you develop these bedrock beliefs? Well, they, 
come to us very early on as we observe how the world operates. And we draw conclusions about what we see. Those conclusions become the lens through which we perceive the world and we make generalizations about it. So we live our lives as if those conclusions are absolutely true, they're well-founded, they're binding, and they're reinforced through experiences that we have. So if you are someone who has some degree of intellectual competency, and then you have that reinforced in your experience by people telling you how smart you are, and going to school, and if you happen to have the disadvantage of going to one of these schools that tells everybody we're all smart, then you'll never be prepared to face the reality that there are people smarter than you. Now think about now this person going out into the real world, the competitive college world, workaday world, and finding out that they're not as smart as they thought they were. A lot of people have a very hard time accepting that because unlike I'm a great tennis player, this is one of those core beliefs about myself that is now being challenged. A person's beliefs about what sort of world we live in, how we should be treated in that world, what it is we're to expect from life, who God is, those will predominantly determine the way we face adversity and difficulty. And that's why we have on page three some key beliefs that key beliefs that many people have about themselves, about the world, about others, about God, they're these embedded kinds of core beliefs that we take into the situations that God allows into our lives. And if we have false beliefs, those will be exposed and they will affect the way we process, navigate through that difficulty. Will we be like the one guy who got laid off? and said the company owes me or will we be like the other guy who trusted God in the situation take a look at some of these key beliefs page three one is this I deserve ease and comfort in life I deserve ease and comfort in life you remember that the first temptation given to humanity was that God does not have your best interest at heart. God's withholding something from you. And with this core belief that I deserve and God is withholding, therefore I'm going to do what is necessary in order for me to get what is mine. That's the first sin in the early chapters of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. Sigmund Freud spoke of the, what he called the pleasure principle. And he said, the desire for pleasure is our primary motivation. To maximize pleasures and avoid pain are what motivate, he said, most people. Consider the fact that people like that who grow up in America are people who have been told, since they were able to read, that, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain, some of you know, inalienable rights. Among these, life and liberty and what else? You've got to love America. Because I get to pursue 
the thing that my ancestors wanted to pursue in the garden. And I get to pursue it my own way. And nobody can put, put any constraints upon the way I pursue it. And so we have this innate sense that I should be able to pursue my happiness and my happiness is the highest good. And when you live in America, we have that explicit in our founding documents. That you're endowed with the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of, of happiness. And so we say there on page 3, we've created a world in which we savor comfort and immediate gratification. Drive up windows, ATMs, things that give us gratification quickly. They're not wrong in and of themselves. The problem is usually not the source of the comfort, but our passionate pursuit of it. Our earnest demands for comfort usually compel us to find ways to elude the undesirable consequences of our actions. Things like lying, abortion, divorce are just ways that people escape pain and suffering that result from poor choices they have made. As we live, we attempt to make life as comfortable and convenient as possible. It's this self-consuming nature that makes understanding God's purposes in suffering unreasonable to us. How can this be that this is happening to me when in fact I'm entitled to pursue happiness, not just pursue it, but to actually have it? And when someone who has that underlying embedded belief confronts difficulty, adversity, they typically assume God is not good. How will you know if you have a belief like this in the bedrock of your belief system that I deserve ease and comfort in life? Here's how. When it's taken from you, how do you react to it? When it's not easy and it's not comfortable, what comes to the fore with regard to your beliefs about God? and about yourself, and about other people. Many of you know uh, the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote much about pain and suffering. And he describes the typical view of the nature of God that many of us have when we undergo suffering. He says this, If God were good, we think, He would wish to make His creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he'd be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, what do we conclude about God? God lacks either goodness or power or both. Do you see, friends, in your circumstances, adverse circumstances, when we react to those circumstances with questions about the goodness of God, it is because we had made some assumptions to begin with. And those assumptions included, I deserve ease and comfort in life. We've got to compare that assumption to the truth of God's word. Does God's word teach that I deserve ease and comfort in life? (laughs) Listen, Les Olala, some of you know that name. He was a former Bible college president. But he would say uh, every day, that you don't wake up in hell is a gift from God. Now that's a biblical perspective on what I deserve, right? Not getting a lot of amens, okay, that's cool. 
But let me just drive that, drive that home further. Y'all see the symbol behind me, the cross? Why was that necessary? Why was the violent death of Jesus necessary? It's because we have committed, each of us has committed, capital offense against God. And therefore, there will be capital punishment for that offense. And thanks be to God in His goodness that capital punishment was inflicted on God the Son on our behalf. But you cannot, dear friends, we cannot look at the cross and claim to be Christians and at the same time say, I deserve ease and comfort. The cross belies that very thing. What made the cross necessary was that we were liable to death and punishment. And Jesus has taken that punishment upon himself. And we still live in a fallen world. And because we still live in a fallen world, the effects of that fallenness are all around us and we will be affected by it. So there's the approach that says, I deserve it. And when it doesn't happen, it affects then, it, it exposes my beliefs about God, about myself, and about the world. And you've got plenty of Christian books and videos and media to reinforce this idea for you. The idea that we are victims to be healed rather than sinners to be sanctified. And what I need are eight steps or five steps or six steps or ten keys to happiness. And that is not what God's Word teaches about us or what God is doing in and through us. Now contrast that kind of attitude to Corey Ten Boom. Many of you know that name. And she survived uh, Ravensbrück. It was a concentration camp north of Berlin. So she knew much about adversity. She suffered hunger, sleep deprivation, appalling living conditions, brutality, and the loss of personal possessions. She lived under the constant threat of extermination. Though, as she recounts in her book, The Hiding Place, that she had moments of doubt, these circumstances actually fortified her belief in the goodness of God. Years after her release, she wrote this, Often I have heard... Christians say that this or that should not have happened. And then she goes on to describe what happened to her sister who she lost. And she goes on to give testimony to the fact that God showed his goodness even in the midst of the loss of her sister. Now, how many Christian people would be able to have that kind of perspective on the character of God in the midst of difficulty? And yet difficulty, trials, pain, suffering, reveal what our real beliefs are about ourselves, about God, and the world. And one of those beliefs that comes to the fore is that I think, contrary to what the Bible teaches and contrary to what I may say, that in my heart of hearts I believe I deserve ease and comfort in life. Here's a second key belief, middle of page three. That I deserve a predictable world. I deserve a predictable world. 
The belief that the world must be predictable is based on the assumption that misfortune is not arbitrary and the events are mostly positive in outcome. This attitude leads us to believe that if we train our children properly, they will not fall away from God. If we're good workers, we won't lose our jobs. If we take care of our health, we will not be sick. Now certainly those kinds of behaviors decrease the likelihood of negative outcomes, but they will not reduce the probability to zero. It's our embellished belief in control that contributes to our blaming victims for their tribulations. Now do you all see what's being said there? Many of us have embedded deep within us this idea, if I do it right, it comes out right. And then when suffering comes, it flies in the face of that. And as a result, I am unhappy, I am depressed, because I've not received what I deserve. What do I deserve? I deserve the commensurate outcome for what I've put into it. I raised my kids right, I worked hard. This should be the fruit of my labor in that. And then when it doesn't happen, I'm not getting what I deserve. Oh, dear friends, be very, very, very careful about setting up a standard in which you say, if I do this, this will be the outcome. Did you know that you don't have control of the outcome? And if you're a control freak, like many of us are, I want to be able to say, if I do this, it comes out that way. I can't relinquish that control to the idea that I can do all of the right things and it goes south. But I was just telling someone Friday in a counseling session a phrase that some of you have heard me use in the past. But it's a phrase that if you will, if you will allow it to dig deep into your soul, it will give you the right perspective on all of the circumstances, good, bad, and ugly, that God allows into your life. It is this. Here's what success is. So I'll give it to you, but I'm just let me ask you, how do you define success? How do you fi- define success in child rearing? How do you fi- define success in your job? How do you define success in your life in general? How do you define success in your Christian walk? And you may not have ever written that down, but every one of us has embedded within us some core beliefs about what success looks like in all of those areas. And I'm here to tell you that in every one of those areas, things could go south. So then what is success? Three words. Faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. That is, if I am faithful to the task and in the circumstances that God has assigned to me, then I am successful no matter how it turns out. Now, I could go on about the benefits of having an attitude and a perspective like that, and there are a zillion of them. But I will tell you that you don't, I know you don't have that perspective if you're somebody who cannot make decisions. Just as an example. 
If you're somebody who gets paralyzed by analysis when you're trying to make a decision and you worry and you fret and you stay up at night because of it, then you are not someone who believes faithfulness is success. Because you're so concerned about how it might turn out. And what I'm telling you, friends, more importantly, what God is telling us is, I can't control how it turns out. So what I concern myself with is the facts that I have at hand and the situation that God has assigned to me, and I am faithful in that. And if I am, no matter then how it turns out, you will hear the words from your Lord, what, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. So when, when we can't make decisions, when we make decisions and they don't turn out the way we wanted them to turn out and we fall apart, we reveal a core belief. I deserve a predictable world. Time does not permit to run all of the implications of that kind of an attitude. But let me just give you one additional implication. And that is that to believe that I can control my world is to believe that I don't need God to control it. To believe that I can control my world is to believe that I don't need God to control it. So brothers and sisters who are control freaks, when you do that, you're saying something about your belief in the control of God. So one key belief is I deserve ease and comfort. And that comes to the fore in suffering. Another is I deserve a predictable world. And then a third, bottom of page three, I deserve a fair world. We have a belief that life is intrinsically fair and that consequently people's decency, morality, and goodness essentially determine what happens to them. We perceive outcomes as either a reward or a punishment. When we assume that our world is fair, our ability to tolerate and accept calamity is dramatically affected. So here's what I want you to think about. Remember I said faithfulness is success. So it's not the outcome that determines whether or not you were successful. It's the process. Not the outcome, the process. And what you did in the process. How do I know this? You know, just do a cursory reading of God's Word, the Bible. And see what the outcome was for, like, all the people in it. I mean, virtually all the people in it, it turned out lousy. I mean, how do I know this? We have a whole chapter in your New Testament devoted to what we call Faith's Hall of Fame. And in Hebrews chapter 11... It lists all of these people who, because of what they believed, did certain things. But then you look at what happened to those people as a result of pursuing those things. And yet in the midst of that, the Bible tells us they, Hebrews 10, the chapter just before that, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32, Hebrews 10, 32, it says you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. 
Now, there's a phrase for you, joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. We'll emblazon that at the next Republican National Convention. And I'm not picking on Republicans uh, or anybody else in a political way, but only to say, friends, even as Christians, we make assumptions about our stuff and our property doesn't mean it belongs to the government, but, but it does belong to God, and he can dispose with it as he sees fit. And if my stuff is gone tomorrow, here's what I need to remember. It wasn't my stuff. And that's what those people in Hebrews 10 did. That's the reason they were able to, quote, joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that they weren't sojourning here as if this is the place where they're planning on being for eternity. And as a result of those core bedrock beliefs, they understood that life is not fair, that we live in a fallen world, and what really matters is whether or not we're faithful in the process. So if you look at page 4, these are the kinds of questions then that come up that reveal that we have these core bedrock beliefs and unbeliefs, misbeliefs. We ask, why me? Now, I'm not suggesting to you when I say these bro things, brothers and sisters, that I never do these things. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. I simply have to tell you what is true and what I should do and what God is teaching me to do I've had times in my life where I've said to myself, why me? As have probably everyone here. But when I say that, and when you say that, notice what we say at the top of page 4. Because we are self-centered people, we often think the worst kind of suffering is our own. The more removed the tragedy is from us, the easier it is to deal with. When we ask, why me? We need to look at a much larger perspective and ask, why them? Or put it another way, why not me? Why wasn't that me? Or why this? As part of our bent for control, we contrive a world that assumes that while certain things may happen to us, other things won't. Whatever the random event might be, most, if not all of us, believe that certain things, quote, could not happen to me. Probably most of us would not say that explicitly, but again, these are bedrock beliefs in our heart of hearts. Why this? Is there anything that could not happen to you? And then why now? We do not like or appreciate interruptions in life. Because we believe that things ought to be one way and we never expect them to be different, we react adversely to crises. When our true beliefs are brought to the surface through calamity, we can strive to align them with Scripture, but often we fight to maintain our view of life. And friends, what I am trying to do, not only in this session but in this series, is to challenge myself as I challenge you. Identify what those core bedrock beliefs are that you have seen rise to the fore in your circumstances. And then let's align those with God's Word. When you do that, you will be prepared for whatever happens, come what may. 
How do I know this? Here's how. Philippians chapter 4 in your Bible. Philippians 4. Philippians 4 has this famous verse in it in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Many of you are familiar with that verse. That's good. What most of us are not familiar with are the verses right before it that place that in context. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, what things? What kinds of things? Here are the things listed in the verses just before. I can be well-fed or hungry. I can be in all kinds of adverse circumstances. And then the conclusion, Paul, who wrote it, says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In other words, I can go through all of this adversity. I can go through all sorts of different kinds of circumstances in life. I can do all of that because he gives me strength. In verse 11 of Philippians 4, just two verses before that one, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. And he goes on to list adverse circumstances and good circumstances, whatever, good, bad. I can endure all of them because of my core bedrock belief in the goodness of God, in the future promise of heaven, and in the use that God is going to make of me in this circumstance, not only in my life, but in the lives of others. That's what he teaches us in the four chapters of the book of Philippians. And Paul exemplified that in his life. All right, we're going to finish here in just a moment. But I hope if you've been paying attention that you're thinking to yourself, how do I look like that? I want control in my life. Are you a control freak? And, and brothers and sisters, it's, it, being a control freak is more than just being an annoyance to the people around you. It is that. It is that. But it's much, much more dangerous than that. Because a person who must control can't handle when things look like they're out of control. So, so deal with that. Ask yourself, what kinds of questions have I had about God and about myself and about others and about his world in the midst of the suffering that he has allowed to come my way? And then I urge you, compare that to what you know about God's word and the truth. Because so often we deceive ourselves and in that deception we have these bedrock core false beliefs that dictate how we react to the circumstances of our lives. Let's ask God to help us this week to analyze the things that we're going through, to think about how we think about them, and to try to unearth those bedrock beliefs that are animating our reactions. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider the false beliefs that so often capture our hearts and thereby determine the way we react to the circumstances that you allow into our lives. Oh Lord, we pursue in our lives day to day, moment by moment, false beliefs. And we cultivate those false beliefs and behaviors so that when the time of testing comes, we are ill-equipped. Lord, the time for us to prepare for testing is before it comes. 
And that is why you have told us in your word that it will come. You've given us advance notice. It has come to us. It will come to us. And so, Lord, help us to use this time as valuable, a valuable resource to evaluate what we believe and whether or not it is truly what you have taught us in your word. Help us this week to analyze our beliefs and our behavior that show up in small ways and large so that when the time comes of testing for us, our hearts will be exposed, but we pray there'll be hearts like that of Corey Tinbu and like that of Faith's Hall of Fame and like that of the great apostle who had learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I pray that if we are not those people now, that we will be, have a holy discontent with where our hearts are. I ask you, Lord, to move on the hearts of your people who are present here. I pray that you have made some of us uncomfortable as the assumptions that we make about ourselves and about the world and about you have been exposed. Oh, Lord, use that discomfort in order to move us toward a proper perspective of all of those things. And thus, and only then, will we receive the comfort that only you can give through your word, by your spirit. We ask you to go with us this week and grant us safety. We ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.